morning again. I'm Taylor Entz. I'm the pastor here. It's a privilege to be the pastor here at Sojourn Galleria. We are a church plant, uh, um, one among a few, uh, four, I guess, churches uh, fa- of a family of churches in Houston, the Sojourn Houston family. And uh, we're just glad to be, I'm glad to be here with you this morning, I'm glad to be called to this area with you guys, um, to live as God's children and to call folks to to see and to know Christ as we as we do, um, man. This this text is something else. This whole book has been quite a journey, and as Bubba said, we're nearing the end of it. And this is a this one has been a doozy for me this week, and I pray that it blesses as hard as it is that it blesses us to that degree. Um, and I pray that I can preach it with clarity. So I've titled this talk uh, "Job's Last Stand: The Move from Magic to a More Solid Faith." I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Amadeus. It, it came out, I think, in 1984 and won, I think it was nominated for in the teens Oscars, won eight, I believe, eight Academy Awards, uh, among them Best Picture, Best Actor. And the, the key feature, and it's actually not Mozart, he's, in a, he's a man named Salieri, who was a competitor, really, in the court of, uh, I think, Franz Joseph II, Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, so it's about the life of Mozart, if you, haven't, if you haven't guessed yet, I didn't make that too clear, but it's really also about this, this man who's much less talented. He's an Italian court composer for Franz Joseph, uh, piano player and um, symphony writer. And his name is Salieri, Antonio Salieri. And he, he was a real character in Mozart's life, and they take some liberties with the movie, but in the movie, he... He's what we would call a Christian, what the movie would call a Christian. He's religious. He's devoted Roman Catholic. And from youth, he's presented as someone who devotes his life to God, basically makes a wager with God and says, look, if you'll bless me musically, then I'll give you my life. I won't, I won't get married. I'll just give you my life, and I'll give my music to you. It'll be an expression of my love and my offering to you. And the short of it is that when Mozart comes on the scene He's so much more talented. He's not godly at all. He's a crass, boorish young man, but he's gifted beyond what anybody else is. He's certainly gifted. He makes a monkey, an absolute fool of Salieri with his gifts, and he just doesn't regard God at all. And Salieri, there's a point at which Salieri throws, so he basically steals Salieri's girl, steals his career, steals his glory, and Salieri Basically, there's a scene where he says to God, I thought we had a deal. This guy hasn't given you anything, and you've given him everything, all this talent. And uh, I've given you my life, and what is this? I'm not as good as he is. He's stolen everything dear to me. And he throws his crucifix. He's Roman Catholic. He throws his crucifix that he's had on the wall and that he prays to in the fire. And uh, he says, grazie, signore. Grazie. And... uh, it's an intense scene. It's an intense movie. I'd highly recommend watching it if you haven't. But the point is that Salieri really has a magical view of the universe. And I really feel that this shows up in this text and really even in Job's view, if I can say that, and I will. That's where we're going to finish my third point this morning. It's where Job, I think, shows us that he is as he edges toward the end of his, his speeches, his round of speeches. I don't think that we can compare Job and Salieri, the character in Amadeus. 
Um, uh, Salieri's view of God is, is egregious, but, and Job is a righteous man, but I think that he has something in his worldview that is similar to Salieri's in that he has this understanding that, that is embedded, that pervades the friend's understanding, if I can say that. Now, he differentiates himself from the friends throughout the book, Job does. And Job differentiates Job, God differentiates Job from the friends at the end. He says, the friends have not spoken of me what is right, and Job has. But I think that we can detect something still, a resident misunderstanding that Job has of the way the world works, that there's still this tit-for-tat theology, there's still this, if I live a good life, then good will come to me, basically. And if I don't, if I dishonor God, then I deserve punishment. But if I don't dishonor God with my life, and Job shows us, he draws up this, this rap sheet of all of his resume, his sterling resume, and we're going to walk through it in the first point. If I have honored God, then why am I suffering? I challenge you to a trial, God. Answer me. There's, I should not be suffering. That betrays, I think, a misunderstanding of the way that God works, and therefore the way the world works, that touches on, at least is tangentially related to Salieri's misunderstanding. So, again, to sort of back up and give a short context, if you haven't been here, let me say that we are in the book of Job, if you haven't picked that up yet. We've been walking through it. This is our sixth uh, week. We have eight weeks total, so next week is going to be God's speeches that sort of cap off the book, and then chapter 42 that is truly the end of the frame of the book, where everything is wrapped up and Job's restored. But this is Job's last stand. It's his last speech before God. And like I said, he, uh, he reveals in detail the content of a life well-lived, of a righteous life. But I believe he also reveals um, a mindset that the entire book and God in a few chapters will seek to eviscerate, which I've, I've sort of articulated briefly, briefly by attaching it to Salieri, this magical religious view of the universe. If I'm good, I get good. If I'm bad, I get bad. It's a way to manipulate God. And we'll talk more, much more about that. But Job is a good man. He's suffering because he's good is the whole point of the book. He doesn't know that. So that that's, that's creates the tension in the plot line of the book is that we find out in the beginning that Job is suffering as a test, really. Because he's so good, Satan puts the crosshairs right on him and says, I'm going to try to make him break. I'm going to see what he's really made of. I bet he's just worshiping God because his life is good, because he's gotten all these gifts. But man, when I take those gifts away, he's going to curse God. He's going to show us what he really thinks, why he's really been attached to God this whole time, just because of what God gives. Job proves that, proves that wrong, and he never turns his back on God. Rather, he goes to God with all of his complaints, which God, in the end, says that's the way it should be done. He takes his complaints to God, and he says, basically, whom have I but you? I know that my Redeemer lives. So here we are at the end. We're looking first at a good man. We're going to start with that. We're looking at a good man, number one. Second, we're looking at God in the dock. Okay, so a good man, then secondly, God in the dock, and finally, a magical view. So a good man, number one, God in the dock, number two, and then thirdly, a magical view. Let's look at Job as a good man. He was good and just because he lived in light of God's goodness and justice. Everything, sort of as we talked about last week or the week before, he lived his life, everything he did in light of eternity, in light of God and God's goodness, never sort of privatizing his activities or his thought life for a moment, never thinking, well, this is... Nobody will find out about this. This is just for me. He never thought that way. God's existence and God's goodness informed everything that he did. I'm going to fire these off sort of basically in order of the text from 29 through 31, just so you can follow along more easily. Um, this is just a sampling of the host of resume points Job gives. 
29, verses 15 and 16, he says that he is eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. Okay, the blind and the lame in that culture, they were just done for. They had, they had nothing. They, don't have, they didn't have the social supports that we have in our society. The, Job doesn't just say, hey, I gave him a scrap every now and again or I tended to him. He said, I was the eyes of those who had no eyes. And I was, I was feet to those who couldn't use their feet. I, basically, I, the way I treated these less fortunate, these handicapped, these that didn't have near the shot in life that I'd been given, was such that it was as if they weren't handicapped anymore by the time I was finished treating them. Amazing. Just the things that he says, if you start to dip into them, amazing to live a life like this. And what Job says here is true. It's not, it's not braggadocio. It's not overblown. This is, how God, this is how Job lived his life. Chapter 30, verse 25, he says he, it says he felt for the needy. His heart broke for those whose hearts were broken. He wasn't just sympathetic. He was empathetic. He was moved by the state that he saw other people in. Um, and as we talked about in the Jonah series, this is really what compassion is. He, wasn't just, he didn't just feel bad for people. His feeling for those that didn't have as much, that were less fortunate, not just materially, but in other ways, too, moved him to action. That's the sign of someone with compassion. That's what God does for us. That's why God has called, well, it's not why God has called. God is a compassionate God. And so because he's compassionate, he doesn't just feel bad for our state, that we're sinners justly deserving his wrath. He came and he did something about it himself. He saved us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. That's compassion. And Job is imaging his maker in that way. So thirty-one, chapter 31, 9 and 10 Check this out, guys. No lust. Eyes and his heart are pure. I mean, that's a mic drop, guys. Man, we could just stop right there and just be done as far as, like, do we measure up to the life that Job presents to us? No way. Um, so he was a man of pure eyes and a man of pure heart. 31, 16 through 22, he was consistently generous, not just now and again, not just once a year, uh, close to the end of the year, when he wrote that big check. He was consistently generous. He was part of the warp and the woof of his life. He was radically unselfish. Here's an excerpt from that passage, 31, 16 through 22. He says, if I have withheld anything the poor desired, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten, eaten of it, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. And let my arm be broken from its socket. Could you say that? Could I say that? If I said that right now and God held me at my words, my shoulder would fall off. I would never say that. The fact that Job can say, basically, I've never eaten at table alone. Because I fill my house and I fill my table with those around me that I see, that I encounter, that I seek out that are less fortunate. Job was this generous man. Thirty-one, twenty-four, and 25, he says, gold is not my treasure. Wealth is not my trust. In 28, he realizes, he reveals a realization in 31, 28, that it's not just about, that it's about, rather, sorry, a heart loyalty to God. It's about an inward disposition that God cares about. It's not just this external behavior, hey, I gave my stuff, I, was, I did a lot of good stuff. He says, my heart was bent toward God. I desired him in the inward part. My my love was not for my possessions. And again, he's speaking truly. This is God's word, and God at the end stamps Job's words and says, yeah, he spoke truly. He's a, he shows himself in the content, verse, especially versus what the friends are saying. 
in the content, in the way that he says it, in the way that he speaks of it, he shows himself to be a man who speaks right, a man who is true, a man who is honest, a man who is good and humble. And so just to be able to say, I had all this stuff, and it still didn't move my heart, it didn't become my God, that is such a rarity. Money is not evil. Money is a resource, just like anything else that God gives us. Um, and we're, we all have a richness in various capacities in life um, of, of resources that God gives us. But money, I think because it can tend to buy almost anything that we desire, um, or lots of things that we desire, rather, because it's a, a, a fluid commodity, can tend to corrupt our hearts. It's very rare to find someone that has lots and lots and lots of money that can say, it's not, my, it's not where I put my trust. It's not that it's evil, it is that it has the tendency to take our evil hearts and to corrupt them, to turn them away from God. Job here says, no, my heart was for God. My heart is hot for God, not for, not for these possessions. I saw them as a gift. 31.29, he loved his enemies. 31.38 through 39, he was a great boss. He talks about his workers. He talked earlier in a se- section that I decided to skip about how um, he treated his servants and those that were in his house that basically in the ancient areas they had no rights. He's like, if I overlook their rights and treat them better than I treat myself and my own family, then God's going to judge me. Like, he, we have one maker. We all have one maker, Job says. He has this amazing, very biblical understanding of where our rights come from. And he doesn't oppress anyone, even though he's powerful and wealthy, or was anyway, before he was struck. Um, and so he's a great boss. He takes care of his workers. He pays them well. He listens to them. He values them. Um, and then in 31, 29 through 34, sort of finishing up this section, he has this amazing litany in verses 29 through 34 of, of chapter 31. Um, he loved his enemies. I mean, again, we could just stop right there. No lust. God was my trust, not my wealth, and I love my enemies. Done. Mic drop. That's a righteous man. He loved his enemies. He fed all who passed by. He never passed the needy without helping him. Can you imagine that? He never hid his sins. And he feared God, not men. Wow. What a godly guy. What a good man. Job's Sort of to put it in Tim Keller terms, Keller talks about how the proverb that says, when the righteous uh, rise, when the righteous rise to power, the city rejoices. But conversely, proverbs are full of antithetical parallelism. Conversely, on the flip side, when the, when the wicked rise, a city tears its hair out and, and goes into mourning. Because a, a symptom of the righteous rising is that when, when, when things get better for a good man or a good woman, everything gets better for everybody around them. All, Keller says like this, all boats, when their boat rises, all boats rise. Um, they don't just grab for themselves because they know that it's from God and they're going to be held accountable one day and God is their, desire, their chief desire and they therefore value other people as made in God's image. And so this is the way Job lived. All boats rose as Job rose. He didn't just step on the backs of people to get up to the top. So hard to find. It reminds me, the all boats rising thing reminds me of LeBron James. Um, how am I going to do this, right? You guys are chuckling already. <laughs> Just had to, had to say that. I feel so tied to the pulpit because I'm so used to it, but I could actually, hey, move out to the side. Um, LeBron James, in I don't remember how many years ago, maybe was it 13? Has he been in the NBA for that long? 13 years? But his high school televised game 
Maybe his first one. First one I saw by ESPN, high school televised game, one of his last games in high school. He was playing like an NBA player already. He just looked like a man among six-year-old boys on the court. And the thing that was so exceptional about him, I remember, it wasn't that he was dunking, which he was, and, you know, uh, doing these amazing Magic Johnson passes. You, most of you guys don't even know who that is. You're so young. Just kidding. I know you do. Um, Magic Johnson passes. It, was that, it wasn't that he was so good, which he was just astonishingly good, but it was that he made everybody on the court better. And that's what the commentators kept saying. He made the wings and the guy, play. he could play at every position. He could hit threes. He could dunk. He was passing off things. He was making other people look good. His whole team was scoring. It wasn't just a one-man show. And that's really, Job was like the LeBron James of the ancient Near East. Um, I guarantee you that illustration's never been used. <laughs> he's like the LeBron James of the ancient Near East. Um, but he's been reduced here to a pile of skin and bones sitting on horse manure. Um, that's where he is. But that was who he was, and it's still who he is. So he's sitting here going, God, God, what have I done? Tell me. Answer me. Here's my resume. I'm putting it before you. I demand, I demand a trial. I demand a hearing. I demand a verdict. That's what he says toward the end of chapter 31. And in his finish, uh, he frames sort of the end of his speech, chapter 31, verses 4 and 37 with his final stand. Put my inner life and my outer life, my thoughts and my actions on full display, faultless. You won't find anything wrong. I have nothing to hide from God or from man, nothing. Give me a trial. Answer me, God. Answer me. So that's the good man, Job. I want to move to God in the dock. This will be our shortest point, but I think it's an important one. So God in the dock, from Job as a good man to God in the dock. I stole this phrase. You're like, what does that mean? What God in the dock? Is he, is he on a boat dock? Um, I stole the phrase from C.S. Lewis. Of course, he was going to make it into the sermon, so here he is. Um, it's the title of an essay that he wrote, and dock here it could be an antiquated, an old um, way of saying witness stand. It could be an, a Britishism, but it means the witness stand. So it's a courtroom term, and it means that God has been put in the witness stand. And, and, and Lewis's point, among others in the essay, is that, you know, for the history of the world, God was the judge, the jury, and the executioner. We were, we humans were in the witness stand. We were living before the gods as we understood them, or God, and we were the ones that had to answer for our lives. But starting really, especially in the Enlightenment, um, things switched, and we began to question God, and are you so good, and do you even exist, and we're going to put you on trial, and so God uh, was put in the dock, in the witness stand, and had to answer for how he ran the universe, and whether or not he even existed. And if, you know, and if, we, if you can't come up with arguments that satisfy me, then I'm just going to go on my merry way acting like you don't exist. And, and as uh, the, the famous um, atheist philosopher, British philosopher, Alfred Lord, I don't have this down here, it just came to my head, so <laughs> Whitehead was his last name, North Whitehead, I think. And uh, he said that uh, if somebody, somebody asked him, what if God's what if God is, and you've been saying your whole life that he isn't, and you die, and you stand before him, what are you going to say? He's going to say, insufficient evidence, God. Insufficient evidence. So God's the one on trial here. Job puts God, this good man, I want to submit to you that he does put God to some degree in the dock, okay? We're going to turn the ship here. Before we get to this second to last sermon in the series where we're going to focus next week totally on God and what he says and how he takes Job to the woodshed, and that he does, my friends. 
he gives Job a thorough shellacking. Remember, God is a God, Job is a godly man, and he speaks of God what is true. But there's a turn here. In 23, 8 and 9, I'm outside of our text, but to make my point, chapter 23, verses 8 and 9, he says, basically, God's hiding from me. You're, you're hiding from me, God. Um, in 24, verse 12, he says, basically, God doesn't hear prayer. And the assumption here, he doesn't just say my prayer. He basically just says God doesn't hear prayer. And the assumption here is that because he doesn't respond to me, he doesn't hear me. And if he doesn't hear me, he doesn't hear anyone. So two assumptions there. If, he does, if he's not responding, he's not hearing. One assumption. And if he's not hearing me, then that just means he doesn't hear anyone. Um, one commentator says, Job here, quote, betrays his colossal ego. I don't know that I would go that far, but I would say we begin to see the creeping in, as, as, as Bubba pointed out briefly, briefly, of Job's pride. Hey, we all have it. And hey, none of us live lives of perfection before God. And that's where we're headed. So we all have a tendency to do this. We universalize our particular situation, and we treat our feelings like they're fact for everything, right? Um, and this says more about our arrogance and our inflated sense of self and insularity than it does about God. Hopefully, Job can help us realize that. We really have no idea what is happening in most other places around the world and hearts, not to mention the far reaches of the cosmos. We just don't. Less do we understand what God is doing and thinking. But we take our experience and we make of it dictums that even God himself must answer to. So Job has turned, finally, in this point, Job has turned from talking to God, which he starts off with in chapters 3 and 4, to talking about God, to accusing God. 17, 3, and 4 is the last time that Job spoke not just about God, but to God. Chapter 17. In this, Job's last stand, he prays to God only in this tiny four-verse pocket in chapter 30, verses 20 through 23. It's the last time that Job, the only time after chapter 17 that Job actually talks to God and not just about God. So I think there's a bit of a, certainly Job is tired, and Lord knows we can see why. Um, But something's happening here. He's putting God in the dock, as it were, I think. Finally, we've looked at Job as a good man. We've looked at um, God in the dock and how Job has really put him, got, begin to put God on trial and talk more about God than to God. And, and then finally, I just want to finish with a magical view. This is the most important point, guys. So I want you to, I want you to stick with me for this point. Uh, if you haven't, if you've been wandering around, come, come back to earth, come back here. Let's talk about a magical view, okay? I touched on it at the beginning of our time, but after all is said and done, at this point, Job still clings to the same view of the universe that his friends had to a degree, to a degree. Keeping in mind that Job is speaking what is true of God and his friends are not overall, still I want to contend that Job, there's something in his thought process, in his heart that is still clinging to the basically the same view of the world that his friends have. And if I am wrong about this, and have to, then Job's going to take me to task when I get to heaven, where there are no more tears, so somehow it'll, he'll give me a shellacking without making me cry. But um, I'm doing my best here. It's a hard book, okay? It's, this is the magical view. It's what I call the magical view. I got, got this from a scholar named Edwin Good. And it's, quote, this is him, this is Edwin. It's the chief enemy of faith in the Old Testament. The magical view of the universe is the chief enemy of faith in the Old Testament, and I would argue in the Bible, okay? 
Now, I know some of you are shocked a bit by my saying, my lining up Job with the friends and pairing them together, because that's not how we're even told to read the book. But I think that we can see some of that here. Because we know that God is, uh, Job is, is godly. And now I'm telling you he believes in a magical view. What? Um, the magical view is the friend's view, and it's basically this. It's a, a view of retribution. Okay, retributive justice, tit for tat, like I've said all throughout this series. Do this and get that every time. If, if I do good, if I live a good life, I'm going to get good from God. And if, I, and if I do bad, if I live bad life and break his laws, even from the heart, I'm going to get punished. I'm going to get bad, and that's deserved. Um, it's like there are levers in life, and if I pull the good lever constantly, good's going to come out like a divine slot machine. And if I pull the bad lever, the bad's going to come out, okay? Um, so basically, I know how to control the outcome in my life based on what I do or don't do. It's a, it's a, it's a view of manipulation. Another word for the magical view of the way the universe works is, as I've said, religion. Don't drink, don't do drugs, don't have sex before marriage, and God will bless you, okay, to simplify it, to caricature it. Break the rules, and you'll get it from the man upstairs. Like I said, it's a way of manipulating things to get what you want in the end. In religion, the thing that we seek to manipulate in this magical understanding is God. So it's a, it's a way of basically getting God to owe us a good life when we do things that he asks us to do. No one ever puts it like that, but we live in such a way that we betray that understanding or that misunderstanding of the way that things work. If I obey, God should bless my life. If I don't, I deserve punishment. So Edwin Good, to quote him, he says, In the dialogue with the friends, Job never entirely departs from the magical assumption. He argues that something, now notice his words. He doesn't say he thinks just like the friends think. None of us are saying that. He doesn't. But he never entirely departs from the magical assumption. He argues that something's wrong with the administration. God, Job, has broken the law. And Job earnestly and repeatedly expresses his desire to confront God to set him right. If the world cannot spin in accordance with justice, then Job wants to get off. Okay, litmus test for whether um, we have a magical view of things to some degree. Only, uh, sorry, only when one, this is a quote, assumes suffering is punishment. Only when one assumes, assumption, suffering is punishment, does the suffering of the innocent appear unjust. So that is one, if we, if we have an assumption that suffering is punishment, then to some degree we've bought into the lie, the, the religious lie, the magical understanding of the universe. Pull this lever, I get this. Pull this lever, I get that. Job, in large part, as a book, is a case study in how that's just not true. And in fact, I would argue that the entire Bible is full of case studies and is, in large, a case study of how that's not true. Um, in Job 31.3, Job says, Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for workers of iniquity? And yet, to paraphrase what he goes on to say, and yet I haven't worked iniquity, not externally, not internally. So why is this happening to me? Why is that a problem for Job? Because he's assuming suffering is punishment. We know from the counsels of the heavenly, from the prologue, Job 1 and 2, it's not punishment at all. It's a badge of honor, and he's doing very well. If this is making you hot under the collar or causing you to think that I'm uttering blasphemy, it's because I want to submit to you. Be patient with me, friend. It's because to some degree you still believe that salvation is partly owing to you, to your behavior. 
So let me, let me take off the scalpel and cut a little bit, okay? Cut a little bit more. The doctrine of election strikes at the core of this magical view of things. Again, Good writes, quote, The magical assumption lies furthermore behind the conception that man's ultimate relationship with God in salvation or damnation is determined by what man does, thinks, and says. For the magical approach to man's relationship with God asserts explicitly or implicitly that in the last analysis, man has the upper hand over God. Man can, by his excellence, okay, man can, by his excellence, require God to save and accept him, or by his unworthiness, require God to damn and reject him. Exalted morality, pursued with the expectation of reward, is magic, just as is the Baalist's orgy. Okay, different means, same end. They're both manipulating. What is he talking about, Baalist orgy? One of the Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern rivals to Israel, uh, they worshiped the storm god Baal, and they would have fertility rites. We've all, if we've been, spent any time in the Old Testament, you've come across mention of these at least. What was, like, why, why, would, why do they have cult prostitutes? Why do they have people that it was their job to have sex in the temple for these gods? Well, what's, that, what's that about? Well, it's about sort of, I give you a little bit, God. I have a little bit of sex with this cult prostitute as an offering, and then you give me the fertility that I'm seeking, the rain so my crops can grow. What's this deal about Israelites adopting the practices of their ancient Near Eastern neighbors by, by sacrificing their sons and daughters to the gods, Molech, others? Well, I give you what's precious to me. I give you one thing very precious to me, God, my son, my first son or my daughter, and then you give me what I'm asking for. It's a way of manipulating God. Um, I want to submit that the whole, not just the book of Job, but the whole history of Israel contradicts this magical view. Because Israel's history is a case study in the doctrine of election. That is, God's choosing a people for himself, not because of how great they were or how powerful they were or how good they were, but the opposite. God says over and over and over again, you didn't even exist. I made you a people out of this wandering Aramean that had totally forgotten about me. His name was Abram. His name was changed by God to Abraham. And God made a nation of him through no good of his own. His wife was completely past childbearing. And God continued to bless Israel despite, despite her behavior. Even though she was the most disobedient nation on the face of the earth, more hard-headed and hard-hearted, God said, than any other people. I've shown you so much. I've done so much for you. But I'm not going to leave you because I'm going to show the world through how bad you are how good I am, how compassionate I am. And guys, that's a picture of God's salvation of us. If you, if you don't own that, if you don't see that, then welcome to the gospel. Job, possibly the most difficult book in the Bible, deconstructs and then explodes this lie of magic. So does the Apostle Paul in what may be the Bible's most difficult chapter when he writes in Romans 9, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. I'm going to read that again. So then, Paul says, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is a humbling truth. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, he says similar things and elsewhere. In the end, here at Job's last stand, his final speech, his plea, his shout to God, demanding an answer from a God he perceives to be unjust. Job's beliefs are held in tension. He holds to his righteousness because he believes it's what God wants. 
But he believes that the wicked have an easy time of it because God rewards them for their wickedness by letting them off the hook and allowing them cushy lives. And this isn't fair. In the end, it's a tit-for-tat theology. Um, my brother loves a guy named Dan Molner, and actually I've, I, I like certain things about him too, and I like what he's doing. He's a godly man. He has the gift of healing and prophecy and all sorts of, of things, and he, you, we actually went to, the family went to one of his talks, and he encourages you, and then he just brings people up and just starts speaking over their lives, and you see healings happen and all sorts of things, and um, he's just on fire for God, but one of the things that Nathaniel reminded me of that he says quite often is people will come to him on a regular basis for healing, but they'll bring, they'll bring their friend who needs to be healed of something. And they'll basically say, different line every time, but the essence of it is, look, we've, we've prayed, we've fasted, we've done everything we know to do, this guy's still not healed, can you help us? And he's like, whoa, 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 hang on, pause, let's get our theology straight. That's not the way it works. What you're doing by saying that is basically saying, we've done everything we can do. We've checked all the boxes. We've pulled all the right levers, and still God's not delivering. Whoa. The only reason God hears anything we say, the only reason we're still breathing, the only reason certainly that we stand in his favor, the only reason we could be touched and healed and more saved is by the work of someone else, and his name is Jesus Christ. He gives us perfect standing before the Father. Based on our own, whether we're Job or someone else, based on our own record, as good as Job was, based on his record, he did not, I promise you, he finds this out in the next few chapters, next sermon, we'll hear about it. You do not want to stand before the living God on your record. You do not want to do it. Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, showed us how badly we do not want to stand before God on our own record. When we look at the cross, and he took our place on the cross, and he became our sin, and he cried out from the depth of who he was, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did the Father forsake his son? Because his son had become our sin, and it had to be punished. And so Jesus Christ became our substitutionary, atoning sacrifice that takes away our sins. They're paid for now. And he rose from the dead. And when we trust in him, we trust that he has paid the perfect ransom price, the perfect sacrifice to make us clean and to make us right before God. And he's alive now, which proves that God accepted the sacrifice as full payment. And he's living and he's interceding for us and he's coming again and he's going to make all things new based on the work that he did on the cross. He's, he's turned the tables over on the curse, and he's, he's undoing the curse through his life, and through his death, and through his resurrection, and through his reign. And so that's one of the things that Molnar reminds people of, which is so, so key. There's nothing more key than that. Um, I have a friend who often responds to the question, how are you? We all want to be honest. I think Lily was telling me earlier, I said, how are you? She's like, I'm good-ish. She's like, I'm working on being, being right you know, uh, being honest when I say that. Like, I'm doing well, but there's some things going on. Well, this guy says, you say, how are you doing? He says, I'm better than I deserve. Which is probably my favorite response so far that I've encountered because it, it, it shows an understanding of this, that what I deserve at all times, even if I think I'm living pretty well today or for the past month, what I deserve is what Jesus Christ got on the cross. Forever. Eternal punishment. Because when I offend God in the way that I live, 
It's an eternal offense to him because he's eternal. It offends all of who he is. My just payment, what I earn for that job that I do called life, is to be separated from the God that made me for himself and to have his just wrath poured out upon me. So saying I'm better than I deserve is just a way of saying grace. Everything that I get is bonus. And that's in this life, it's as bad as it's going to get. It's as bad as it's going to get for the Christian. For the non-believer who hasn't hidden in Christ yet by faith, who's still trying to do it on his own, it's as good as it's going to get. No matter how bad things are on this earth, this is as good as it's going to get, so enjoy it. But Christ has made a better way. And Christ is that better way. My friend, um, your uh, faithful worship leader, Chris, this morning, he, you know, he looked over my notes and we were talking about magic and, and the magical view of the universe and how it's just wrong. And he's like, I hope you're talking about the deeper magic. And I was like, I wasn't going to, but I am now. Um, and what he's, he couldn't help himself because he deals with that kind of stuff. He's working on a, a postgraduate degree, a PhD in uh, uh, children's literature and fantasy and, and uh and, and it involves magic, and, and so, you know, I hope you're talking about deeper magic. I was like, how could I hear, hear that challenge and not, and not include it here? <laughs> challenge. It's like, ah, I forgot about the deeper magic. So here I want to sort of finish by touching on the deeper magic after having talked about how magic is bad and the magical view of the universe is bad. And really, we get what we get. If we get good from God, if we get God's shining face, we get it because of grace not magic, because of what we don't deserve and what Christ has won for us, because of what he's paid in our place. Um, but there is a deeper magic, um, and that deeper magic comes from, as far as I know anyway, C.S. Lewis. Again, here he is at the end. C.S. Lewis, in, um, in his book that in some lineups begins the Narnia, the, the seven Narnia books in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And toward the end of that book, the climax of the book is Aslan, sorry to be a spoiler for you, but Aslan gets put on the old stone table and, and uh, he, gets, he gets sacrificed. But that's not the end. Um, and one of the things that we learn in that book is about the deeper magic. And this is what Aslan, he gets sacrificed because he, he dies so that a guilty party, Edmund, can live. And Edmund really represents us all. We deserve to get on that stone table and because of our lives, our lives are forfeit because of the way we've lived before God Almighty. They're forfeit. But Aslan steps in Edmund's place. The sacrifice still happens. Edmund goes free. Aslan gets the axe, or the knife in this case. Um, but then after he rises, ha-ha, and begins the process of restoring all things, he says to a gr- his group of friends, the queen, who for the, uh, the, white, the white witch who sacrificed me, She knew about the magic, but what she forgot about was key. It was the deeper magic. And this is how he describes it. When a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. And so we see that the magical view of the universe, I deserve what's coming to me, I've lived a good life, it doesn't wash because we haven't lived a good life. But there is one, the deeper magic is the gospel of grace, which is that, yes, we are saved by works, but not ours. There was one who, a willing victim, willing to take the place of any sinner who would trust in him, who would look to him for salvation, who laid his life down on the cross, and because he had done no wrong, he didn't deserve to die, so he could die 
in the place, not for himself, not for himself, but in the place of those who deserve to die. And he could give his life, which was a perfect testimony before God of his righteousness from the heart to all those who would trust in him. When we look to Christ as our Savior, it doesn't just mean that we're forgiven of our sins and cleansed of our sins, which it does mean that. It also means that we are given his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping from the heart. Better than Job ever could have done, Jesus did it. That's the deeper magic of the gospel. That's the deeper magic of grace. Some, some applications and implications, and then we're finished. If you're a child of God, it's not because of anything you've done. That's the gospel. You're not a child because God favors you because you're more excellent. It's, in fact, despite the way you've lived and despite what you've done. You're not better. You were chosen in love, not because you were good, but because God is good. And his putting his love on you makes you good. Makes you perfect in his sight, and then it actually makes you throughout your life, and then at the end, better and better, and then glorified. If you're unsaved and not God's child, you're no worse than any believer here or in history, Old Testament or new, past or present. This means there is hope for you. I don't care if you've murdered someone, if you've committed rape, or I don't, we could go through a list of egregious or normal sins, how full of pride you are, you know, lust, sloth, um, we could go on and on. This means that there is hope for you. Salvation's not based on our performance. It's based on God's good pleasure and his goodness and what he's done for us in Christ. It depends on not us, not you, but on God who has mercy. Cry out to him. Look to Jesus. Guaranteed you will be saved. It's a guarantee. If, if you're a believer, this should humble you. It should give you an expanding heart to see the lost saved because an empathy with their condition. Like, I'm no better than any single person here. It's not that I'm better. That's not why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because... I was a miserable sinner, and I looked to Jesus, and he's the perfect sacrifice, and he saved me. For some reason beyond me, because of his good pleasure, Ephesians 1, God chose me. Um, Keller um, uses this example of two thieves. I think I've used this before from this pulpit, but they both steal something, and then they escape from the compound, or they try to escape from the compound. They climb the chain link fence. One of them gets grabbed, but they both get grabbed by the shirt. One of them gets pulled down, the other one goes free. The one that got pulled down, his shirt didn't rip. The one that got went free, his shirt ripped. And so the guy that lives for the rest of his life, let's say he lives a free life, he reforms his life, he leaves his thievery behind, but forever and ever, if he's honest, he remembers the fact that the only difference, the other guy goes to jail, his life's ruined forever, he's in prison forever, that's his destiny. The only difference between us, if I'm honest, is that my shirt tore. It's not that I'm better. It's that my shirt tore. The only difference between me and someone who's outside of Christ, who has the judgment of God on them, is that for some reason God decided to show me mercy. How humbling is that? How freeing is that? How, how bad does that make you just want to go share the gospel with the worst of sinners, with anyone? Because anyone can be saved because Christ has come for all. Um, Let me close with this from Paul. It's good to close with Paul. Romans 8, one of my favorite chapters, maybe the richest chapter in the Bible. Um, I want you to, I want to close with this truth, this application truth. One other thing this should do for us is that you, 
your salvation, if you are indeed in Christ, has nothing to do with who you are with you. It's all God and his mercy. That should give you total confidence in the fact that you, you can't lose your salvation because it didn't depend on you in the first place. It's secure through the work of Jesus Christ. It doesn't even depend on how strong your faith is. It doesn't even depend on that because God has chosen you. He's drawn you to himself. And if you're thinking about coming to Christ, the same goes for you when you come, okay? God has got you. That's the point of, one of the points of John 10. No one can snatch them out of my hand. If you think that you're an exception to that no one or no thing, nothing can snatch them from my hand. I've got my own sheep. If you think, oh, I can snatch myself, that's so arrogant. You can't. You cannot snatch yourself from God's hand. You're secure in Christ. Um, and uh, this wonderful rhapsody that Paul ends Romans 8 with, I want to end our, this sermon with. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you catch that? Paul says that he is suffering in terrible ways and that he and others are being murdered, slaughtered like animals, all for Christ's sake. You see how different that is from Job? Does he infer, does Paul infer from this that God is angry with him for a sin that he must have committed or that God's not fair or just? On the contrary, he goes from here immediately into this encomium of praise to God about how neither his nor anyone's security and sonship in Christ can ever be lost. How can Paul do that? How can he say, I'm suffering terribly, I'm suffering because of Christ, and then say, ah, the love of God? How can, how can Paul do that? Because he understands that God has saved him despite himself, and that indeed because our Savior came as a perfect man, lived a perfect life from the heart, and then suffered more than any, even Job, more than any of us ever will, the connection, that magical connection between suffering and punishment is broken. It's broken. We have the love of Christ based on nothing we've done, but everything that Christ has done. And therefore, Paul can say, I rejoice in all things. I'm secure no matter what happens. And that, my friends, is worth, it's worth shouting from the rooftops, to use a quote from, um, help me out here, Civil War poet. I shout from the rooftops. Anyway, sweaty tooth madman. I forgot his name. All right. It's a quote from someone. The gospel's worth shouting from the rooftops, and let's pray. Father, I thank you that um, the gospel doesn't cease to be amazing just because pastor loses his last words. It doesn't cease to be amazing because I'm not living the way I should. It doesn't cease to be amazing because the magical view of the universe isn't true. Um, you destroy that in your word. You show us a better way, and the way is Jesus Christ. Um, the only reason that you have favor on us, and it's the only reason that we need, is because of his life and his death and his resurrection. Um, and Lord, I just pray that that would set us free this morning, wherever we are. If we're inside Christ, that it would just set us free. And, and 
we have a tendency just to keep getting on the magical treadmill and trying to do the right things so that you will love us. You already love us because of Jesus. You can't love us any more than you love us. And so I pray that we could just live in that freedom. And that also, if we're outside of Christ, that it would encourage us to seek Christ and to say yes to Christ and to come home to the God who made us and who's provided a way for us, the only way. Anyone can come, but they can only come one way through Jesus Christ. I pray that that would cause revival in this place in our hearts and it would go out from here and that many, many, many would see you and be saved and come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.